John 18, starting in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If you were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I have found no fault in him at all. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Father, we look to you today and we thank you for your word. Would you speak to us through it and draw us near to you, God? Teach us your ways. Lord, we continue to lift up those who are hurting here in the body. Lord, we pray for our brother Greg in the hospital. Continue, Lord, to fight for him in prayer. Would you heal him? Lord, encourage and strengthen Andrea walking through this with her husband, Lord. Lord, we just look to you. We continue to pray for Rachel and John with the loss of their son, Benjamin. Lord, would you encourage them and strengthen them each and every day. Father, we look to you as... So many things in the world and in our lives that may feel like they're overwhelming, Lord, we look to you, the rock, a firm foundation. Strengthen us, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning once again. And Mike, it's maybe not the last time you'll do announcements. <laughs> we'll pray about it. 
just as we, you know, it's, it's crazy how Thanksgiving ends and at like 12.01 or midnight, day after Thanksgiving or, you know, we, it's called Black Friday. It's like a holiday in itself now. But as soon as the, the clock ticks, we're like, all right, that's it. It's Christmas time. You know, or if you're in my house, we decorated last week, right? The week, uh, last Sunday, we decorated half the decorations for Christmas, and then this week, we do the rest. And it's just so easy, guys, with all these fun and exciting things, it's so easy to get caught up and to get it all mixed up in, in such great fun things, great celebrations. But let's not forget what's most important. Let's not forget what we're all about, not just on Christmas, every single day. If we rise up every day and our, our goal and our purpose is to glorify the Lord and we are here for him, then this day will be no different and the next day will be no different and every Christmas celebration we participate in will be no different because it is for the glorification of Jesus Christ, Amen. Anyway, that has nothing to do with my message today. Just a little introduction of reminding us what we're all about every single day. Uh, John chapter 18, as we're continuing our study through John's gospel, uh, and we finished chapter 18 today. This is our third week in chapter 18, and so far we've had a lot of this picture of the authority and the power of Jesus that has been made so clear to us uh, through in the garden uh, when they confronted Jesus, when they came searching for him, he spoke his name and in that power they fell to the ground like dead men. Uh, we see even in the midst of this unjust and unfair trial, unofficial trial even taking place that Jesus demonstrates his knowledge and understanding of the law, kind of putting them in their place and demonstrating his authority over the whole situation, and we're going to continue to see that today. So we keep that in mind as we move forward uh, throughout this entire chapter of John chapter 18. We keep that in mind. It is all under the authority and the power of Jesus Christ, and that's it, right? And so we begin here. Uh, as they start to shift gears, it's gone from the, or from the religious world, the religious circles, and then putting him through this unjust trial, this unofficial trial. Now things are moving along. It's gone from Annas, who was not the high priest, trying to get it done quietly and, and quickly and, and just let's find a way to put Jesus to death and try him without this being official. Didn't work. They pass it on to Caiaphas. Gets a little more official. And now we find ourselves where things get into more of a political uh, picture here in John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. First of all, they depart, as we said, from the religious circle, from the religious trial that was going on with the high priest Caiaphas. And then from Caiaphas, they went from that, the unofficial trial with Annas to the official questioning of Caiaphas and now on to Pilate, the Roman leader, the Roman commander. And now it's becoming an official political situation, an official trial even before the commander uh, uh, in Rome. 
And he's led to the praetorium, and the praetorium is the, the, uh, would be the military commander's headquarters, right? So he's brought to a military commander. He was faced in the garden by a whole army of hundreds of men, and now he's brought to the military commander at the praetorium, and it was early morning. Now, what that tells us, that it was early morning, is that all of the things that preceded this had lasted through the night, we know that Jesus went to the garden. We know that Jesus prayed in the garden. He prayed it through the, into the, late into the night, and it continues on and continues on through the entire night. Clearly, Jesus had gotten no sleep. And now, I'm, I'm just looking at this in the perspective that Jesus was completely poured out. Jesus already was spent at this point. And things had just started to get physical. And the, the last week, we looked at the very first physical abuse of Jesus when he was slapped across the face when he was struck across the face it was the beginning out of their indignation out of their their frustration they had gotten so angry with him that they just they struck him right and so that was just the beginning of it it's going to get a lot worse the physical harsh persecution and harsh dealings with jesus are going to get worse and worse but it started with him praying Late into the night in the Garden of Gethsemane, then pouring out his, himself, right, sweating the blood in the garden and, and just completely being poured out. And then it goes on later into the night and he's arrested and then he's put on this unofficial trial. It keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. Now it's early in the morning. Jesus is already spent. But we know, and even as we've been told, how are we to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Because Jesus has been poured out, heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're seeing that here now, early in the morning. It had lasted through the night. Things are getting to be more official. And the religious leaders, they pass him on to get now into this political situation. And it says that they did not enter. They did not go into the praetorium. They would not go into the headquarters or the courts of the Gentiles. Why? Because they would be defiled. Their motivation was two things. One, they didn't want to be defiled according to Levitical law. If they were to enter the courts of a Gentile's house or the Gentile headquarters in this situation, they would be defiled. And that defilement would last until sundown of that day. Well, they, it was Passover, and so that day, sundown, means they would miss the Passover feast. So two things that fueled them, that motivated them. One was their stomach, right? I mean, most men would agree, especially right here on the heels of Thanksgiving, that our stomachs will often motivate the way we respond to things, right? Let's get this taken care of, and we're not going to go there because we can't be defiled. We can't miss the, the Passover feast, right? We, we plan everything around feasting, Thanksgiving, what's it about? We get together, we start cooking on Tuesday, right? And then we cook all half the day Tuesday. Then we got to keep going on Wednesday. We cook some more. And then Thursday, it's like, okay, everything has to be timed out just right because the turkey's going in the oven at this time. And if everything's not planned out, the turkey, you have problems. We, this Thanksgiving, we had a problem. As we put the turkey in. Everything's good. We're all set. starting to smell real good in the house. And then it's somewhere along the way, we turn the oven off. We were scrambling, doing other things. We hit a button, and I don't know how long it was, but I, I'm, 
oh no. My wife's like, what happened? I'm like, the oven is off. I was almost in tears. This is a big problem because our whole entire life in that moment, we were completely centralized on our stomachs. At least I was. My wife wasn't. I was. Like, what what are we going to do? If the turkey's not cooked, then Thanksgiving is ruined. What is Thanksgiving all about if not for eating, right? But in reality, we do the same, and this this is their perspective, We can't be defiled. They would be defiled plenty other times. They would have no problem being defiled and breaking Levitical law on their terms, in their way, and more in secret. But at this point, they would not be defiled so that they could be prepared for the feast on their terms and their way. John, here in this statement, is exposing the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. They were so concerned about this defilement that at other times they weren't concerned about. They weren't concerned about the defilement that had already taken place in their hearts as they rejected the Messiah. They were already defiled. They were already not right before God, yet they were so worried, oh no, we're going to be defiled so we can't celebrate a Passover feast and so that other people would see and know that we broke this law, that we didn't uphold this Levitical law. The dangers of legalism. Legalism will oftentimes lead us to hypocrisy. We get so caught up in the things that we should and shouldn't do and what it looks like to the world or to the, to the other Christians around us. We compare ourselves to the people around us and like, I have to look better than them. This is the world we live in more so now today than ever. Social media has made everything about what do I look like? How good can I make myself look to everybody around me? Seeking the approval of people everywhere. And what does that do? It promotes hypocrisy. Because we put on the good face and we put our post out on Instagram, right? And look at that. My family is perfect. Look at our turkey. It's perfect. Well, now you know. Even if we did post a picture that showed a good-looking turkey, we had problems along the way. It did come out great, but we had problems along the way. But this is what we promote. This is what is promoted in the world. It's hypocrisy. We'll put up the picture. Look at my kids. They're perfect. They're wonderful. Nobody's kids are perfect and wonderful. Let's be real. <laughs> Look at my marriage. It's perfect and wonderful. Is it? Nobody's marriage is perfect. I pray it's wonderful. But nobody's perfect. And yet we put the picture out there. Look at how great I am. Self-promotion and it's hypocrisy. We get so concerned about these things. And and it's the legalism that leads to hypocrisy. It's the legalism of checking the boxes and saying, look at what I can do in righteousness. I can look righteous. I can look holy. And that's really all that matters rather than actually being holy. But what did Jesus call them? Whitewashed sepulchers. Whitewashed tombs. Dead on the inside, but looks great on the outside. The practice of the law was not to be motivated by self, 
not to be motivated by the optics of what it looks like and how good I can look and, and how I can fulfill my own version of the law. And that's what would take place. Oftentimes, there, I mean, the, the Pharisees were so good at their interpretation of the law. They were so good at twisting things to fit so they could find loopholes to still uphold the law without getting the heart of the law. But what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to fulfill the law. But here's, listen, here's the heart of the law. The, the law, the practicing the law was to be motivated by love for God. And they were told this. They would know this. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 through 6 says this. Now this is the commandment. And these are the statutes and judgments which, which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. This is the heart of the law. Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is, they would have learned this in temple. They would have learned this in the synagogues. Since they were little kids, they would have heard these things and learned these things. But yet they had forgotten the heart of the law. They were caught up in the letter. They were caught up in what it looks like, the optics of how they're presented as good law, good law upholding righteous men. But the heart, what is the heart? The purpose, the motivation should be our love for God. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And this is a, this is a, a section of scripture. This is known as the Shema. This is a section that everybody, not only would they have learned and studied this, this would be memorized. This was part of like everyday recitation in school to memorize that. You shall love the Lord your God. And it is directly connected to the law. That's what he's talking about here. Say, this is the commandment. These are the statutes. These are the judgments. This is what the Lord gives us as, as a law to follow. And we are to love the Lord. We are to love the Lord through our obedience to him. But they had forgotten. In the midst of all that, what is happening? Jesus is fulfilling the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. But they're all so full of hypocrisy. Verse 29, Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against the man? Simply Pilate recognizing their superstition or their, you know, their law and their way and saying, all right, fine. He goes out to them knowing that they wouldn't come in to him. So they've delivered to him a, a prisoner and now he's got to go out and figure out what's going on with the prisoner. But he is now calling for the accusation against Jesus. He has to figure out what is going on. They've just given me this man bound 
and now he's calling for the accusation. This is the one and probably the only moment in which Jesus gets somewhat of a fair trial. It ends very quickly, but in this moment, Pilate's doing what needs to be done in finding the accusers, finding the accusation that's against Jesus. Verse 30, they answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. What they're saying simply here is, just trust us, he's guilty. And what they're also saying is it's already been decided. So in that, that it's already been decided, they're presenting Jesus to Pilate, saying to Pilate, we just need you to be the executioner. That's it. It's already been decided, and we've already, he's already being presented as an evildoer by the world. What's the problem here? Truth is completely twisted, and we're going to see that throughout this passage. There's no foundation on truth in this trial whatsoever. And the truth is being twisted as Jesus is being presented as an evildoer. But what did he pray for in John 17? That he would be presented to the Father as the perfect and spotless lamb. That's what's actually happening in the spiritual realm, in the spiritual terms. But now, here's these religious men caught up in hypocrisy who are presenting Jesus to Pilate, a ruler of this world, as a wicked man, as a flawed man, as an evildoer. They expected injustice from Pilate because that's the type of leader that Pilate was. That's the type of ruler that he was. So they just brought Jesus hoping anticipating he won't ask any questions. We'll just present Jesus as a wicked man and, they'll t- and Pilate will take care of the rest. They wanted him to be the executioner but not the judge. The, ultimately, the, the religious leaders, the religious rulers had already tried and sentenced Jesus but without a trial. They condemned Jesus without a trial. They wanted this to be a formality because it was not lawful for them to put a man to death. They were trying to use Pilate, and it would seem as though Pilate knows this. He's like, I'm not going to get caught up in your trap, or I'm not going to get caught up in your world. Because Pilate then goes on to not make things very easy for the Jews. Now, you have to understand, there was always animosity between the Jews and the Romans, So between the the Jewish leaders and a Roman ruler like Pilate, then there would definitely be animosity between them. They're trying to come together on their terms. This is what happens when the world tries to come together on their terms. Let's have unity. It doesn't work. There's no unity when you come against Christ, only for Christ. But we continue verse 31. Then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to point, put anyone to death. Now, the Jews make clear here their intent in this statement. But Pilate first starts with, you take him and judge him your way. I don't want to have anything to do with this. What, I don't under, he doesn't even understand why is he being brought to me. Since you already decided, you've already formed your opinions about Jesus, then you deal with Jesus. 
according to your law, according to your religious uh, uh, situation, according to your religious traditions. You deal with him and stand by your claims. And this, so far, they have brought accusation. According to Luke's gospel, chapter 23, he says, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the king. These three accusations against Jesus are false accusations against Jesus. They said, we found him, right? We found him to be perverting the nations. This is the idea that all these enemies would be coming against Rome, against the Roman government. So he's perverting the nations. He's causing all these people, they're going to come against you. He's, he's refusing to pay taxes to Caesar. These, none of these things are true. Jesus was presented with the question that they might trap him to, hey, should we pay taxes? And he said, what? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to, the, to God what is God's. He didn't tell him not to pay taxes. He said, yeah, pay taxes. And claiming to be Christ, a king. All of these things would have piqued the interest of Pilate because now these are all things that it would come against the Roman government, would threaten Pilate's authority and the authority of all the other Roman leaders. They come directly against, and they, they're, but at the same time, they're completely twisting the words of Jesus and fabricating evidence against Jesus. They're fabricating the, the real accusations against Jesus. But they make their intent clear here. As he says, you judge him. Therefore, they said, it is not lawful for us to put a man to death. So what is this here? This isn't to bring Jesus and put him on trial. We talked about it last week in John 11. They were plotting to kill Jesus. We referenced back to that. After he had raised Lazarus from the dead, what was their purpose? From that point forward, their plot was to kill Jesus. That was it. There was no plot to put him on trial. There was no plot to just arrest him and give him a hard time. Their plot was to kill him, and they make it clear once again in saying, we bring him to you, Pilate, to be tried, to be judged, so that he could be killed. Because it's not lawful for us to put a man to death. If they were just trying to question Jesus, they would have kept it to themselves. But they wanted him to be put on display. They wanted to show their religious authority, and now they're trying to interest Pilate and say, show your political authority. Everybody's puffing out their chests, thinking they have authority, thinking they've got it here. They've got it all figured out, and they're going to show and demonstrate their authority. But they're saying it's not lawful for us. It's saying that it's about death, and that's why we're bringing him to you, so that he will be put to death. And we can't do it. According to our law, we can't do it. And according to your law, we can't do it. Right? The Romans had jurisdiction to put a man to death. So they're, they're bringing him to Pilate so that the Romans would take care of it. And they're, they're saying that according to our law, we can't do it. We can't put him to death. We can't sentence a man to death within the religious system. They're showing their hypocrisy. Their legalism, once again, that they would reject and condemn Jesus to death but not break the Levitical law of following through with putting him to death. It was their hardness of heart. And they still wanted to look right in the eyes of the people. But Pilate would have understood 
They, they, didn't, they didn't have a right to try and sentence someone to death under the Roman government. Interesting, though, that didn't stop them other times. Again, they, they broke the law constantly. They found their way. As, it would, as they would please, they would fit it in. Like, oh, well, we could do this here. Maybe it's not Passover. It's not the Sabbath, so we can skate around this and then kind of be cleansed after the fact, like this defilement of them. They wouldn't enter into the praetorium. Or, or here, we, we know that they would take people out and stone them, right? In Acts chapter 7, what happens? They tried and sentenced Stephen to death for preaching the gospel. And what did they do? They took him out and they stoned him to death. So they would pick and choose all the time. They wanted Jesus to be put on display. They wanted to show the authority of the religious system and they wanted to pique the interest of Pilate in the political system that, that Jesus in his death would be put on display to show the authority of man. But this is constantly what's happening. The truth is being twisted because man has no authority. So what we know, the real reason that they could not put Jesus to death was not that they had no right under the Roman law or that they didn't want to break the Levitical law, but here it says in verse 32 that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. That's what it was about. It was actually about the authority of Jesus. They think that they're going to show their authority and they're going to put, to Jesus, put Jesus to death in their way, but it was actually coming back to the authority of Jesus so that his words would be fulfilled. John chapter 3, we studied it many months ago. In John chapter 3, verse 14, it says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up signifying by what death Jesus would die. It's talking of a Roman crucifixion on a cross. In John chapter 3, now here we are, John chapter 18, and they think that they're showing their authority, that they're demonstrating their power and authority over Jesus and over the situation. All they're doing is falling in line with God's perfect plan. That's what was happening all along so that the words of Jesus might be fulfilled. His authority is what matters. Jesus is still completely in control, demonstrating that his life was not taken from him. He gave it up. We go back to, as I started with, we can look in John 18 throughout this chapter. It's about the authority of Christ. The first, the first week we studied there is Jesus in the garden showing his authority, showing his power, speaking his name, and they all fall to the ground like dead men. Demonstrates his knowledge and his understanding of the law, showing to be himself in complete control. He didn't get mad. He wasn't sitting there like, this is not fair, and fighting for fairness. He just spoke of his knowledge, his understanding of the law, so that he would continue to be passed along, so that this plan would be fulfilled, so that he would get passed on to the Romans, so that he would die of a Roman crucifixion. 
And now here, completely in control, that his word, his prophecy is being fulfilled to prove that he is in complete control. Verse 33, then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? There's a lot of back and forth going on here. We know even in the midst of this, there was two visits to Pilate. So they brought Jesus to Pilate. Pilate sent him on to Herod Antipas because Herod was the ruler of Galilee where Jesus was from. And so Pilate thought, maybe we'll just let Herod take care of this. And that falls under his jurisdiction. So, and then Herod sent him back to Jesus. And, and, and Pilate, or back to Pilate. And Pilate's been back and forth from Jesus to the Jews, back to Jesus. It's all getting completely mixed up. And this is what happens. This is what it looks like when the world tries to be unified. Right? Isn't this what, like, okay, no, you know, it's not going to work. Annas has, oh, let's send him on to Caiaphas. Caiaphas, no, let, no, let's send him on to Pilate. Pilate's like, hold on, let me go talk to the Jews. I have to go out here because they won't come in there. And so he talks to them out here. And then, he, then they send him on to Herod. And Herod's like, no, I'm not handling him. You go back to Pilate. And Pilate's back and forth. And hold on, what's going on here? This is how crazy the world looks when they try to unify. There is no unity apart from Christ. It's only Jesus Christ that brings us together. And that's what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. He prayed for the unity of all believers because he knew there is no unity of the world. And he told the disciples that you are not of this world, John chapter 16. So here, with all this madness that's going on, Herod asks the question, are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? And in that question, he's even doubting. He's like, are you the king of the Jews? Because the Jews sent you to me. This doesn't really make sense. Are you the king of the Jews? In a sense, of what he's saying is like, are you a king at all? Because this doesn't, I don't see it. He's looking at Jesus thinking, you're the king of the Jews, and they turned you over to me bound like a criminal. You don't look like a king. You don't look like a criminal. You don't seem like a threat or this revolutionary either that they claim that Jesus is. Something was clearly different about Jesus to Pilate. He noticed it, but he wouldn't stand on it. Verse 34, Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about me, about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Are you speaking for yourself? Have you, have you stood on a conviction? Are you asking this question? Are you seeking truth? Are you asking on behalf of those who've already condemned Jesus? Pilate, what he's trying to figure out is, are you a threat? Are you a political king? Are you a religious king? What is it? Because he wants to know if Jesus is a threat to him. He's heard this, these accusations from the, the, the religious leaders saying that he has... You know, he's, come against, he's coming against the government. He's refusing to pay taxes, and it's big problems here, and they're treating him like a criminal. And he's looking at Jesus, are you, are you a king? Are you even a criminal? But are you going to cause a threat? Is, is, is Jesus a problem is what he's trying to get the answer to. 
And then he says to them, I'm not a Jew. Jesus said, are you do about, is this about me, are you, or is this about those who have said this about me, the con- concerning others, the opinions that have already been formed? Are you just believing what's been told to you? Or are you seeking for truth? And he says, I'm not a Jew, meaning I will be influenced by the Jews. Now, he's once again puffing out his chest saying, in pride, I'm not a Jew. As Jesus asks him the question, are you saying this because of others? Are you asking this question because of the Jews? I'm not a Jew. I won't be influenced by the Jews. That's what Pilate's response is. He proclaims this with pride. And as he says it, he's like, I'm not a Jew, but the Jews turned you over to me. And when he says even this, I'm not a Jew, is him saying, I won't be influenced by them, but I also hold your fate in my hands because I'm not a Jew. I can put you to death. I can sentence you to death. And now here's Pilate. Look at me. I'm not a Jew. I'm not one of them. I won't be influenced by them, but I also hold your fate. I am in complete control. This is his claim, ultimately. Little does he know, he has no authority here when it looks like on the world's terms that he has complete authority, he's got none, absolutely no authority. But then he asks this question, he says, what have you done? Why have they turned you over to me? What have you done? Why do they hate you so much? Why do they seek to kill you? What have you done? This is a profound question to ask the Messiah. In a sense, asking, what have you done that they would hate you? But also asking just that question, what have you done? This is Jesus. What has he done? I mean, the answer we know could clearly have been, well, he's performed many miracles. He's healed lame men, blind men, fed thousands, walked on water, raised a man from the dead. What has he done? Jesus has done great things, but Jesus doesn't respond with that. And Jesus came to save the world. He doesn't, that'd be a great starting point, you'd think, right? But it all needs to happen according to God's perfect plan. What have you done? Verse 36, and Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Jesus doesn't answer with a defense and even saying, what have I done? Here's all the things that I've done. That's what we would do. Oh, you want to know what I've done? Well, let me list it for you. But in his perfection, in his righteousness, and in his humility, he doesn't even answer that question. He goes back to the previous question when he says, you are, are you king of the Jews? So you want to talk about my kingdom? Let's talk about my kingdom. And in this is a glorious proclamation of truth. My kingdom, claiming that he is king, 
But his kingdom is not of this world. He's not a political or religious king in these terms that Pilate is asking. Pilate already has asked, are you the king of the Jews? He's like, yes and no. I'm king. My kingdom is not of this world because this world is not worth being king over right now. There's a lot of cleansing and redemption that's going to take place. My kingdom is not of this world. And so Pilate's asking the question, and ultimately, Pilate's relieved at this point. Oh, good. Right? He says, my kingdom's not of this world. Now he's like, this guy's crazy. Is he some sort of extraterrestrial? Not of this world. There's only this world. Especially to Pilate. He's like, man, this is the world. I'm the ruler, and this is the world. Jesus is saying, no, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is speaking, of course, of his heavenly kingdom, and Jesus is, is talking about where he came from and where he's going that we have talked about so many times throughout John's gospel. Heaven, where he came from and where he's going, and now he's talking about that kingdom. That's my kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. A relief to Pilate a relief to the Roman government that his kingdom is not of this world. He's not a threat. But let's look at what an earthly kingdom looks like. What is the foundation of an earthly kingdom? It's power, money, self-worth, pride, dominion, world domination, influence. This is the kingdom of this world. What is the heavenly kingdom founded on? Love, humility, sacrifice, righteousness, and truth. True righteousness. That's who Jesus is. And continue in verse 37. Pilate therefore said to him, are you king then? Are you king at all? If you're not a king of this world, are you even a king? What does that mean? You say rightly, for I am king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness of, to truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Are you king? You say it rightly. I am king. It is truth. And Jesus can only testify of truth. Jesus is different than any other king because he has a different kind of kingdom. And what he says here is that he is born for this cause, and that cause is truth. What Jesus is ultimately saying here is that he is the king of truth. Now, Jesus already said he is the truth. Now he's saying, I'm the king of the truth. And anyone who knows the truth, anyone who knows me, anyone who is of the truth, hears my voice and heeds my voice. Jesus came. He was born for this cause, and it's the cause of truth. In the world that is full of lies and in a trial that is completely based on lies, Jesus is the king of truth. And so then Pilate asked this question, 
As Jesus has come, he was born for this. He was born to be king of truth. He was born to come and be tried in this way and stand on truth and be truth in the midst of all the lies. He was born to fulfill the work of salvation, which is happening according to his plan and under his authority. And Pilate says, what is truth? What is truth? It's an interesting question, but as he's saying it, it's a sarcastic question even. So it's a cynical question. What is truth? What is that worth being king of? Why would you want to be king of truth? There's nothing good about it. There's no power in that, is there? All the power is in that. He's mocking Jesus as king of truth, but also at the same time, he's saying, you know what's truth? Roaming political power, that's truth. My power is truth. You know what's truth? That I hold your fate in my hands is what he's claiming. Twisting the truth into various different versions. Claiming even in that statement that truth is actually a relative statement, and it's relative to the individual. And right now, Pilate's truth is, I control your destiny. I control whether you live or die. Is that true? Absolutely not. He thought it was. And we can recognize this, guys, that God's authority, God's sovereignty, everything that we think we have control over and power over, we don't have it. We have no authority. We have no power within ourselves. It's Christ alone who possesses all the power and Christ in us that can make great things happen. You see, Pilate makes this claim, and, and it's the same today that Pilate or that people would think that truth is relative to the individual. Listen, any claim that truth is relative is a direct rejection of Jesus Christ. So be careful what you hear and what you listen to in the world. Be careful of the political ruler that says, I'm truth, and I hold your fate in my hands. Be careful of all the lies that get thrown around us in the world today. Anything that claims that truth is relative and anybody that claims that truth is relative is directly rejecting Jesus Christ. That is not a safe place to be. So Pilate then goes on, he says, I find no fault. He doesn't want to deal with it, right? He can, in verse 38, after he says, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews. Again, this back and forth. He's going out, he says, I find no fault in him at all. He doesn't, he doesn't know how to handle this. He doesn't want to handle it. He finds no political, no religious fault, no reason to put him to death. What he's saying ultimately is that you have no reason to bring him to me. There's no reason to put him to death. Jesus is perfectly innocent, fulfilling the scripture. 
But then verse 39, he says, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? There's a custom. Now, this custom was never practiced. Because what? Because there were all criminals locked up. For the most part, there was criminals locked up. It was very rare that this was a custom that they would actually practice. But it was like digging up something. Oh, we got something here. And Pilate's like, all right, look, to put it into your, back into your hands, because I don't want to have my name on this, you've got a custom that I would release to you a prisoner at Passover. Well, here it is, Passover. Do you want to practice that custom with the king of the Jews, with Jesus? He's appealing to them, and he's attempting at the same time to release an innocent man. In a, in a sense, he's just saying, can we just forget about this and move on? Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And Pilate's clearly confused by the situation of why they've turned Jesus over to him. But it's a pretty lame attempt at the same time of trying to release an innocent man because he's got no conviction. He doesn't doesn't present this to them and say, hey, you could have Jesus or you could have Barabbas. He said, do you want Jesus? Do you want this so-called king of the Jews? There's no conviction. And without conviction, we flounder in our faith. Without conviction, we end up on the wrong side of the rejection of Jesus Christ. It's important to have conviction. When it's it's about Jesus, our conviction matters most. And we should have the strongest conviction. And we've said it many times before that Jesus is the only dividing factor. There's so many things that the church gets divided over. The world gets divided over. And more and more all the time, there's more things that pop up, something else. And people all have their opinion, and they all have to make their opinion known on social media. And everybody gets mad at each other about the opinions that are put out there on social media. And there's all the division that takes place within the church. But guys, the only thing worth dividing over is Jesus. Do you believe or not believe? That's it. There's light and darkness. But without conviction, we find ourselves on the wrong side. Without conviction, we flounder in faith. And they say, their response is, uh, they cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. And now Barabbas was a robber. Not this man, but Barabbas. This was not offered to the Jews. Pilate didn't come out and say, hey, we have a custom and we're going to do this and we practice this custom all the time. Here's the lineup of criminals. Who do you want? And they say, oh, we'll take Barabbas. No, he presented Jesus to them. And they said, no, we don't want him. We want Barabbas. Matthew and Mark tell us that it's the chief priests and the elders who persuaded people to ask for Barabbas. They, they went looking for the criminal that could be released in the place of Jesus. 
And Barabbas was a dangerous criminal. This was not just like, oh, I mean, John just writes that he was a robber. But other study would tell us that he was a murderer, that he was, in fact, he caused all sorts of problems in society. He was like a terrorist. That's who Barabbas was. A terrorist, a robber, a murderer. And they're like, yeah, give us the murderer. Put the dangerous criminal back on the streets and take Jesus. We don't want Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was messing with their world. Jesus was turning their world upside down. The religious system was falling, was crumbling to pieces right in front of them. Because Jesus came to change the world. Jesus came to fulfill the law and to make all things new. The name Barabbas means son of the father. Such an interesting translation of his name in that representation of a counterfeit version of the Messiah. He was the man they called for. The counterfeit version. Barabbas, he, he represents a complete lack of truth in every way. We don't want the innocent man. We want the murderer. We want the robber. We want the terrorist. Things that don't make sense. And embracing something that is contrary to the truth and contrary to justice. At the same time, rejecting and condemning the true son of the father in Jesus. Barabbas being a criminal, a dangerous criminal, but the people stood with Barabbas and for Barabbas and against Jesus. And we like to, we like to blame the Jews. We like to blame this angry mob for putting Jesus to death. But we're one of them. Taking our stand with Barabbas in daily decisions. As our sinfulness joins the masses in calling for the execution of Jesus. It was necessary. And it was all under his authority. And Jesus, there's such great foreshadowing here, even that Jesus took the place of Barabbas, not just on this trial, but likely the cross was intended for Barabbas. As these criminals hung on a cross on either side of Jesus, that, other, that third cross likely would have been for Barabbas, a true criminal. But Jesus took his place, quite literally, and Jesus took our place. As he not, not was his life taken, but he gave his life. Because he has all authority. Not Annas, not Caiaphas, not all the religious leaders, not Pilate, not Herod, not the Roman government, but Jesus laid down his life in surrender when he had complete authority. And he even said it earlier, look, my servants would fight for me. 
You don't see a war going on, do you? Because he laid down his life. And I love when he says my servants, he's not talking about his disciples. Peter tried that. He said, Peter, put it away. It's not going to work out. Jesus is talking about the legions of angels that he could call down in a moment and wipe them all out. He said, this wouldn't even be a fight. The Jews have nothing against my power. You have nothing against my power. But in his authority, he laid down his life, submitted to the will of the Father to bring salvation. Let's pray.